Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio this week James W. Lowen, who is the best-selling and award-winning author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, Lies Across America, and Lies My Teacher Told Me About Christopher Columbus, as well as the Mississippi Chinese and the Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader. He has won the American Book Award, the Oliver Cromwell Cox Award for Distinguished Anti-Racist Scholarship, and many other awards. Today, we'll be talking, among other things, about the new edition of his book, Sundown Towns. Jim Lowen, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Hey, I'm happy to be with you. Uh, great to have you. Uh, Sundown Towns is a wonderful book. It is, came out uh, first came out, I believe, in 2005. Can you give newcomers a very brief overview, and, and then can sure. you describe what the response has been in the past 13 years or so? Well... First of all, the question is, what is a sundown town? And uh, it is a town that is all white on purpose. Uh, Most of them kept out black folks. But it's a great country. We've had some sundown towns that were directed against Chinese Americans. In fact, that was the first round way back in the 1870s and 1880s. And then between 1890 and 1940, Uh, That's this terrible era that we call the nadir of race relations, or nadir, N-A-D-I-R, low point of race relations. And during that era, all kinds of towns across the north, uh, from Washington and Oregon, all the way to uh, Pennsylvania and New York State, all the way to Florida, because I'm going to argue Florida in this regard is a northern state, Um, they had all kinds of communities that decided to become all white on purpose. Uh, And the term sundown town comes up from the fact that some of them, especially in the Midwest and in Oregon, also in Appalachia, actually put up signs at their city limits. Uh, This sign, for instance, was in Manitowoc, uh, Wisconsin. That's a city of about 30,000, maybe 30 miles north of of Milwaukee. Uh, It had the sign nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in Manitowoc. And of course, I had to use the N-word because they did, and I don't want to soft pedal the the crime, really, of, of these sundown towns that went completely across the United States. Can you, can you, Jim Lowen, can you just explain uh, quickly how the nadir of race relations, 1890 to 1940, I think you said, is, is lower, worse than slavery? Yes, sure. Uh, I'm not trying to say that if I were African American, I'd rather be uh, a slave in 1859 than a citizen of whatever dubious rights in 1915. I'm not saying that for a minute. But what I am saying is that beginning in 1890, we took a turn for the worse, um, the worst even with a T on there. Uh, three things happened in 1890 that caused us to, to designate that year as when the nadir started. Um, and they all happened near the end of the year. One of them was what used to be called the Battle of Wounded Knee, but now it's more accurately being called the Massacre of Wounded Knee in Wounded Knee, South Dakota. And Native people go into their nadir for sure. Uh, The last shards of independence are taken from them, um, and even the population drops by 1910 or 1920 to below 200,000. 
and it just wasn't a good time to even claim to be native, uh, be native, excuse me. And so uh, Native Americans in New England, for instance, denied it. And I remember I lived in Vermont for years. The, the population of uh, Abenaki Indians in Vermont fell to 51 uh, in 1930, I think it was. And now it's back to above 2,000. Well, that's not because all those folks had 50 babies each. It's because people are now willing to admit again that they are Native. They're even taking pride in it. So that's that, that part of the Nader. Uh, a second thing happened in 1890, and that was uh, the Mississippi Constitution. Now, Mississippi had a perfectly good constitution in 1868. But the problem with it, according to white racists, was it let black folks be citizens. They could vote. They could be uh, on juries and so on, even run for office. And so in 1890, they passed a new constitution that didn't allow that. Now, you couldn't do that explicitly, but they were quite open about what they were doing. And the key clause was you have to, in order to vote and or do any of those other things, you have to interpret the state constitution to the satisfaction of the local voting registrar, which meant the local white registrar. And there's cases that this got, once this was passed and the United States didn't do anything about it, even though it was clearly unconstitutional under the 15th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, um, every other southern state followed suit and states as far away as Oklahoma by 1907. And so the voting population uh, was cut dramatically. The number of black voters went from over 100,000 to fewer than 5,000. Um, and that took care of any kind of political power, any kind of justice. Uh, all the juries became all white and so on. And the third thing that happened in 1890 was the United States Senate failed to pass uh, by a single vote um, the Voting Rights Act of that year called the Federal Elections Bill. Uh, and it wasn't as good as the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but it wasn't bad. Uh, and if it had passed, it might have uh, been used to, to uh, redress some of this other stuff. But uh, after it failed, the Democrats did what they usually did. Remember, the Democrats were the party of overt white supremacy in the 19th century and into the 1920s even. And they tried to tar the Republicans. Uh, you people are nothing but a bunch of, and they said, the, the word again, nigger lovers. And in the past, the Republicans had said, well, you're darn right. Somebody has to stand up for these people. It's an outrage what you're doing to them and to white Republicans as well uh, in every October, uh, November election in the South. Um, well, in 1891, they made a new reply, and their new reply was, no, we aren't. Uh, and they moved on to other issues. And so African-Americans had no political allies. So that's when the Nader's set in. And what happened then is, we became more and more racist all across the country. Uh, example, Harvard University. Uh, African Americans were students at Harvard. But after the Nader sets in, around 1910, they can no longer live in the dormitories in the yard. All right? And that's in Boston, you know, the cradle of abolitionism. Um, across the South, of course, we know about the Jim Crow era, but it wasn't just in the South. Uh, restaurants and theaters in the North, too, practiced Jim Crow. And literally sundown towns sprang up everywhere and there were little race riots in all kinds of towns across the midwest for instance that drove out the few black citizens that they had there and then these towns became all white on purpose 
I, I, I think I'm remembering so many questions, and I'll come back to asking what the response has been to the book, but uh, I'm remembering in the book uh, a series of uh, sort of an alliteration, a series of words beginning with I that were also factors, you said, in yeah. the 1890s. Yeah, One. there's three underlying causes of this nadir. Uh, we sociologists always try to look for underlying causes, if you will. And of course, one cause it not even uh, doesn't even start with the letter I. Uh, we have a anti-racism surge of feeling during and right after the Civil War. I mean, after all, the Civil War became fought on the North side to end slavery as well as to hold the country together. Didn't start out that way on the North side. On the South side, it was always to extend slavery and, and to make slavery secure forever. Well, if you're fighting to end slavery, pretty soon you're even fighting for black rights, at least the right not to be a slave, and pretty soon even the right to vote and so on, because otherwise uh, all of the deep southern states are going to go right back to being pro-Confederate in their policies. And so uh, during Reconstruction, the whole country, to some degree, starts favoring black rights, not, not all whites, but a bunch of whites uh, across the North and even some in the South. And so that uh, idealism is there. But it fades as the people die, as new people come into the country. There's a lot of immigration, and it's not their issue. And so that's, that's one cause that allowed the nadir to come in. But you correct. You remember there's the three eyes, And one of them is, in fact, immigration. Now, the first immigration problem that sapped the Republicans' anti-racism was in California, and it was Chinese. And so you get this wave of anti-Chinese sentiment coming along with the building of the railroads and so on. Uh, and as a result, um, sundown towns against Chinese, well, every single county in Wyoming, for instance, drives out its Chinese population, two, three, eight, ten, however, whatever it was, except one county. Uh, the population of the state of Idaho had been 19% Chinese, well, it was a territory, in the 1870s. By 1890, it was less than 1%. Chinese got driven from all across Idaho. And so they wind up in big city Chinatowns. They didn't start out that way. They started out growing food and mining and do, doing things all over the rural. And, and we just kind of think, I thought that it was just kind of natural that they left one of the biggest cities in, in China, Canton, and came to the United States. And, of course, it's just natural they wind up in Chicago and, and uh, San Francisco and Seattle, Chinatown. It's not natural at all. They got driven from town after town. So, and the third eye, wait a minute, I think that's only one eye. <laughs> the second eye would be Indian Wars. Uh, here we are during Reconstruction saying, we're giving equal rights to all without regard to race, except for American Indians. Um, and so we discover gold on their land in Colorado, uh, their land in Dakota Territory, and blam, we take it because they're Indian. Well, it's really hard to be anti-racist and then make an exception like that. It saps your anti-racism. And then the third eye was imperialism. And imperialism isn't our invention. It, it floods over us from Great Britain and Germany and France and so on. But we make use of it, and we take Hawaii. And our justification is mainly that it's not white. Uh, and so we, we subvert the existing government of Hawaii and take it. Uh, and then with the Spanish-American War in 1898, after we win it against Spain, uh, we then attack the Filipinos. And 
uh, take the Philippines. So we become an imperial power. And the Democrats call the Republicans on this. They say, you know, the Filipinos have established a democracy. Why are we attacking them? And the Republican in charge in the Philippines says, quote, our little brown brothers are not ready for democracy. And so the Democrats replied perfectly reasonably, well, what about our little black brothers in Alabama and Mississippi? Maybe they aren't either. And the Republicans had nothing to say. So that's what destroyed the anti-racism of the Reconstruction period and led to the increasing racism of the nadir. Yeah, perhaps it, it's the low point of, of northern race relations, uh, racial yeah, really attitudes. What it is, is it's the high point of racism as an ideology. Right. I mean, if you think about it, even Mrs. Jefferson Davis, Verena was her name, in 1859 could not claim that slavery was an equal opportunity system, you know? Uh, you had to admit that it wasn't exactly racially fair. But in 1915, say, uh, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, look around. These black folks are still on the bottom. They're living in, in terrible conditions in the bigger cities and, you know, huts and so on. Uh, and they're out of slavery for two generations. It must be their own damn fault. And so the the level of racism in white society went to its all-time high. And, and I think a lot of people, as you say, Jim Lowen, uh, imagined that uh, blacks who moved north moved to big cities by choice, uh, or by happenstance, or yeah, to exactly. connect with friends. Uh, and in fact, what your book, Sundown Towns, revealed to a lot of people starting in 2005 was that blacks moved to the rural north and then were driven out. Uh, and That's exactly uh, right. were people surprised? Did people refuse to believe? Did people accept and act on your proposals? What, what has been the, the response? Well, first of all, amazement. And I appreciate the amazement because I had it. Um, I had an aha experience while writing this book. And it came about in my own hometown, which is Decatur, Illinois, which is right in the center of Illinois. Now, Decatur was and is an interracial town. Uh, it never became a sundown town. But when I was growing up in it, I was vaguely aware that all the little towns around Decatur didn't have any black folks. But I thought that was just natural. I, I thought that black folks were showing good judgment by not living in little towns like Pena and Maroa and uh, Villa Grove, towns too small to have a motion picture theater, towns with nothing happening, you know. Um, it turns out it wasn't natural at all. And so I gave the keynote address to the second annual Decatur Writers Conference, uh, because I'm the third best-selling author from Decatur, never mind about why they didn't get the other guy, but anyway. Uh, and it was about my bestseller, Lies My Teacher Told Me. But when I got done, and this was in the year 2002, when I got done, I told them what I was working on now which was Sundown Towns. And I invited anybody who knew anything about Sundown Towns to come down and talk with me after, my, after the question period. And to my astonishment, more than 20 people came down. And they told me uh, hair-raising stories about almost every town around Decatur. Uh, for instance, they told me, two people told me, that Villa Grove, which is over near Champaign-Urbana, where the University of Illinois is, that Villa Grove was a sundown town, and that it even sounded a whistle at 6 p.m. or a siren to tell black folks to be gone. Now, I thought that was crazy. I thought it was a, an urban legend, if you can have an urban legend in a town that small. But it was telling me that it was a sundown town, and it was telling me that they had a, a siren. I thought it was probably a shift change at a, at a uh, factory or something. And so a year later exactly, 
I go off to Villa Grove to check it out. I go off on a Saturday afternoon, and I stop at the uh, biggest, the only real hotel in town, uh, and it has become a uh, kind of a refuge for older white men who live there, and I was going to go interview them. And as I'm walking up the steps to this enormous wraparound porch on this hotel, uh, the weekend manager sitting at a card table on the porch asked me perfectly logically, uh, can I help you? And so I come over, and we have the following conversation. After I say, hi, I'm Jim Lowen, I'm from over here in Decatur, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I say, I have heard that Villa Grove has a siren or whistle that goes off at 6 p.m., or at least it used to. Is that true? And he said, yes, it is. And I said, "Uh, well, is that a, a factory shift change or or is that on a green elevator? And he said, no, it's on the water tower. Uh, and I say to myself, hmm, that's a city structure. And it is on the water tower. I took a picture of it on the water tower. It's still on the water tower. And so then I asked him, well, why did it sound at 6 p.m.? And he said, um, uh, you mean um, originally? Uh? And I said, well, yes. And he said, well, uh, originally, and I'm hearing all these ums, And so I say to him something to make the interview flow better, but it didn't have any content. It couldn't have biased it because it didn't have any content. I just said, it's okay. I know. And he looked relieved, and he said, well, originally it happened at 6 p.m. It went off at 6 p.m. to tell blacks to be out of town. And I was still so amazed by this, even though I was surmising it, that I wasn't a good interviewer in the next moment. I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yes. I mean, I had a vision of all these black folks at the age of town, and it's 5.59 p.m., and they say, oh, shucks, there goes that siren again, and they all leave. Why not tell elephants to be gone? You know, makes this much sense. I said, does it still go off? And he said, well, no, they stopped it about three years ago, which would have been 1999. I said, is that because Villa Grove changed its policy? He said, no, uh, he didn't know about the policy. But that's because people living near the the uh, water tower complained about the noise. Well, I went back the next Monday, and I did a total of 11 interviews about Villa Grove, and everything he said was exactly correct. And so th- since then, I found a whole bunch of towns that sounded whistles at 6 p.m. And not always, but often, that was for the original purpose of telling blacks to be gone. So this became the thing to do across the the Midwest and into Pennsylvania and Oregon. And, and some still sound at 6 p.m., but they've been given other meanings? That's right. They still sound at 6 p.m. And, of course, some people in Villa Grove even didn't know the meaning. I'm sure some people say to their little kid, all right, when that whistle comes, sounds, you be back, this is time for dinner. You know, and, and that's sure. what it means in that household. But two-thirds of the people I talked with in Villa Grove knew the original meaning. And... Uh, Many of the people in some of these other towns still know. By the way, there's two towns, adjoining towns in Nevada, that sounded a whistle to tell American Indians to be gone. Yeah. The uh, the question I have in terms of of how this has been accepted uh, is, is, have any towns recognized their past and apologized or actually changed yeah. policy or they put up have. honest historical yep. markers? Well, I am, um, yes, that's the short answer. Uh, I, I propose 
that every son downtown in America needs to take what I call the low-end three-step program to get over it. Um, because a number of these towns are kind of over it. Um, an example I give is the infamous town of Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, Ferguson uh, was a suburb of St. Louis that actually had a small black population, which was rather unusual. Most suburbs were formed keeping blacks out from the beginning. But Ferguson had a little black neighborhood. And as of 1940, it had 60 African-Americans in this neighborhood uh, out of a total population of maybe a little over 2,000 for the whole town, uh, maybe a little more. Uh, during the next 20 years, the population of Ferguson quadruples. Uh, it goes up above 10,000, maybe even to 20,000. I'm not sure, but it goes well above 10,000. And while it quadruples in population, the black population goes from 60 down to 15. And this is a time when the black population of the St. Louis metropolitan area, owing to the great migration from the south, goes up by at least a factor of two, maybe even it triples. So there has to be something going on here. And it turns out that they use two techniques to drive out their black population and keep out new blacks. They put a huge chain across one uh, thoroughfare going west to the next town west and blocking it off. And that next town west was a little black suburb called Kinlock. And so this tells everybody in Kinlock, well, you we're not wanting you in, uh, in Ferguson. And the second thing they did was what we call DWB policing, driving while back. In other words, they targeted blacks. In fact, they were still targeting blacks as of three years ago or four years ago when they had their racial disturbances. And uh, that's why they had those racial disturbances. Now, the town, meanwhile, after about 1960, it stopped being a sundown town, and indeed it now is two-thirds black. But the police force was unchanged. The police force was still using DWB policing. Well, that's an example of what we call a second-generation sundown town problem. And I submit that the reason that towns need to take my three-step program is to get over the legacy of being a sundown town so that you don't have these problems in the police force, problems in the teaching staff, and so on. You want to hear what the three steps are? Yeah. Well, the first step, and you'd think this would be easy enough, is admit it. Yes, we did this. But I've dealt with towns that actually, in one case, uh, Greensburg, Indiana, uh, the town had a race riot that drove out its black population that even made the New York Times in 1902, and the mayor wouldn't admit it, you know? Second step, apologize. We did this, that's the admission, and it was wrong, and we apologize. And third step, and we don't do it anymore, and there needs to be some teeth in that third step. You know, we're hiring black garbage men. We're hiring black teachers. We're trying to house them in the city. Now, once you've taken those three steps, you're past it. And at my website, I describe a couple of towns that have done just that. They've done it openly. Uh, one is Goshen, Indiana, near Chicago, and one of them is... Um, La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is over on the western part of uh, Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. And they both, they both have done it, so it's possible. That's great. You, you, you also in the book uh, proposed uh, legislation, a, a Residents' Rights Act. Uh, has there been any, any now, interest? Wouldn't that be cool? No. <laughs> the short answer is no state has passed that. Um, the United States could pass it. It, it works like this. Um, one of the best reasons for owning a house as opposed to renting a house, is you can write off all your mortgage interest from your income tax. You can't write off your rent, but you can write off mortgage interest. 
And the alleged reason for this is because it's supposedly in our national interest to be a nation of homeowners. Uh, I think the biggest reason for it is because the the, uh, realtors and such lobby for it. But I'm in favor of it. I think it is great to be a homeowner. For one thing, you you start learning some carpentry and stuff, whether you want to or not, and I think it's good for you. And uh, you do start building up some some equity, and we want that. All right. So uh, is it in our interest to have more and more and more white homeowners in sundown towns? I submit it isn't. And so the Residence Rights Act would simply say, okay, if you live in a confirmed sundown town, and the town hasn't done anything about it, and it's still a sundown town, then you don't get your mortgage interest exemption. So this would be a a, a Civil Rights Act, if you will, that didn't cost a dime. In fact, it brought in some tax money. Yeah. Uh, But no state, states could pass it, because states usually mimic the federal government and allow the same um, uh, exemptions and stuff on their state income tax that the federal government does. But uh, I have to say, that one has not gone anywhere. Well, it, it needs to. We, we need to keep pushing for that. Um, I, we've just got a few minutes left. I'm, I'm here, as you know, in Charlottesville, where just about a year ago there was this yeah. uh, white supremacist rally, and Trump famously responded in a way that the white supremacists took as encouragement. In sundown towns, you talk about the influence of top-down spreading of racism, in, including the example of UVA graduate Woodrow Wilson, uh, can you can you talk about how that works today and maybe compare Wilson with Trump? Sure. Um, Wilson was the first Democrat to be in office uh, after the Civil War, with the exception of Grover Cleveland, who got in two separate times, you may remember. Um, and both of them, Cleveland and Wilson, ran on a white supremacist platform in part. Um, but Wilson didn't run on it as openly as Cleveland, and so he got some black support, because by that time, as I already mentioned, the Republicans were backing off from their support for civil rights, and so black folks had nothing to lose in a way, and so they, as Trump argued, uh, you have nothing to lose, so vote for me. Uh, Well, black folks didn't vote for Trump much, but some did vote for Wilson. But then when he got in office, he proceeds to segregate the federal government, which had not been segregated. He segregated the Navy, which had not been segregated. Uh, every little place where they're sorting mail, even, he either fires the black employees or makes them sort in a separate room or puts at, least, at least puts up a screen between them and the, and the regular workers, shall we say. Uh, he segregates every cafeteria, so you cannot eat with your friends who are white uh, if you're black. Uh, this has a terrible impact on, on the black community in Washington and really on race relations across the country. And it led to what we call the Red Summer of 1919 which is not red because of communism, but it's red because black blood flowed across the country as there were race riots, by which I mean white folks rioting against black folks in town after town, Chicago, uh, Detroit, uh, Washington, D.C., and and so on, places in the South as well. So, and of course, sundown towns continued to flourish in that that environment. I think that, that we're not, uh, being as influenced by Trump as we were by Wilson. And, of course, that's partly because Wilson was, shall we say, a much smoother president with considerable international standing. And, of course, he, he uh, had the good fortune of leading us in World War One. And any time you're a war leader, that, that gets you a whole lot of following. So 
So I actually think that what happened in Charlottesville is terribly important. And I use the term BC. We've got 30 uh, seconds. I mean before Charlottesville, okay? Uh, and it's particularly important to the question of Confederate monuments. Uh, because right after Charlottesville, all kinds of cities which had been questioning their Confederate monuments but not taking them down began taking them down. And I have an analysis of that, but it was triggered in particular by what happened in Charlottesville. So I think Charlottesville, though it was a tragic thing locally, uh, was uh, a, shall we say, helpful event nationally. I, I'm glad to hear it. We'll have to have you back on to discuss further. James Lowen, author of Sundown Towns, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. It's always my pleasure talking with you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.